gets brighter when we understand the science behind it. Hey team! Hey! Hey everyone! Welcome back to Getting Brighter, the podcast where we shed light on the science of health, wealth and society. We're here to break down the latest research and provide you with practical tools for positive change. I'm Dr Emily Hughes, a social psychologist. And I'm soon to be Dr Marsha Remskar, a behavioural scientist specialising in health psychology. And today, the episode is all about something very dear to Em's heart. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) We're talking about the power of the group or social influence. This is essentially Emily's life work so far. To date, so... All of my PhD work was basically looking at group influence and how behaviour can be very much influenced by your groups and how, you know, your group and what it means to be a part of your group can also be influenced by behaviour. So I'm very much interested in this topic and very excited to talk about it. Nice. Let's go straight to it. Yeah. So when we say social influence... What do we mean by that? Just start at the very beginning. Yeah, exactly. So it's quite a broad term. um, But broadly speaking, social influence refers to how the presence of others or other people or their actions can influence our attitudes, beliefs and also our behaviour. So we often believe that we are responsible for how we behave. We have kind of agency over our own actions and this is true but a lot of time people can also impact us and so it's really important to understand how others can impact our behavior Mm -hmm. because then we can learn how to encourage good behavior and prevent unhelpful behavior in ourselves yes nice so the better we understand ourselves the better exactly and this area of research has a super long history i remember that's one of the first things i learned about as far back as kind of college a levels international baccalaureate so where did it all start yeah so you're completely right social influence research has a super super long history in social psychology such a long history that it would be impossible to cover it in one podcast episode so i'm just going to really scratch the surface of that and hopefully give Mm -hmm. a nice introduction to the topic Under the umbrella of social influence comes this idea of conformity. And I think Mm -hmm. that's a lot of the early research we know about kind of speaks to that idea of Mm -hmm. social conformity, which is essentially the act of changing your behaviour to match the responses of others. Um, So just a bit more specific in that sense. An interest in conformity can be traced back to kind of classic research in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. So very early days in psychology. (laughs) Yeah. And some of this research was conducted by a psychologist called Sharif in the 1930s, as I said. And in this work, they basically staged this really interesting situation where they had a point of light in a room that appeared to move. And this room is dark. But in actual fact, this point of light wasn't moving. And the researcher asked people to estimate the distance that that light had moved. And he asked them to estimate this when they were on their own and also when they were in groups of three. And what you saw from this experiment was that when people were on their own, Mm -hmm. people were saying wildly different things because this is an illusion. It's not actually moving. So people aren't really sure what's happening. Mm -hmm. But when you're in a group of people, basically what you see is that consensus kind of forms and people tend to base their responses on what others have said. And so that was kind of a key word that came out of that research is this idea of convergence and consensus. So 
people will do what others are doing, particularly when they're not sure in instances like this, because it's kind of ambiguous. That, what's, that's the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah a bit what's of deception. Going on. <laughs> yeah, a lot of research at that time was kind of doing that kind of thing. And skipping out a large part of history, moving on to kind of the 1980s, following lots and lots of studies that were showing similar effects mm-hmm. or kind of, you know, in other areas, but all kind of showing you the same thing. And in the 1980s, Robert Caldini published um, a really influential book called Influence, The yeah. Psychology of Persuasion. And this book looked at factors that influence decisions that we make and also how we can use our understanding of this to persuade others. Mm-hmm. That is a, a really good read. And I think something a lot of people have read at kind of undergraduate psychology degrees. It, yeah. It's really a classic. It is a classic. And in a lot of ways, that work has kind of laid the foundation for nudge theory, which yeah. might ring a bell because we discussed it in the episode about choice architecture. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's been very inspirational in that sense. Mm-hmm. And in this book, they made reference again to this term of consensus, which Caldini also called social proof. And this was introduced as one of the key six principles of influence, which really highlighted how humans are social by nature. And this means that when it comes to making our decisions, we often look around us to see what others are doing Mm -hmm. before we then go forward and make our own minds up about something. And in other words, this kind of gave rise to this idea that people are motivated in certain situations Mm -hmm. to behave in line with a social norm. Again, giving rise to more new terminology that we need to learn. (laughs) to be able to describe what was happening. We have spoken about social norms a little bit before, Mm -hmm. but just to kind of clarify what I mean by a social norm, to give you a definition. So social norms are rules and standards that are set by those around us and that guide or constrain behaviour without any force of law. So it's not, you know, a written rule. It's Mm -hmm. this kind of socially Mm -hmm. implied rule that we might have. Yes, exactly. So again, norms sound familiar because we have discussed them in the different types of choice architecture. Yes. Where actually one of the types was nudging and the other one was default. So mm-hmm. basically we spoke about how prescribing a social point of reference, if you will, can help make more people make that decision, guide yeah. people towards that decision. Exactly. So it's a, an example of a nudge because it's nudging you in that direction. Yeah. And this kind of norm is very different to a personal norm. So it's kind okay. of important to make that distinction, which is the rules or standards that you would set for your own behavior. Okay. So different in terms of, you know, this is how you think that you should behave versus mm-hmm. how others maybe are influencing how you behave. Okay. And when it comes to social norms, it's really important, again, to distinguish between two types of norm because they have, you know, different influences mm-hmm. over how you behave. So more fun keywords coming in here. I'm basically <laughs> a dictionary at this point. Yes. Yeah. So the first keyword I want you guys to try and remember is a descriptive norm. Okay. And this refers to behavior that is typical of mm-hmm. those around you. So behavior that is common. So for example, if you see a newspaper article that states that the majority of people in the Netherlands use a bicycle to cover a short distance, mm-hmm. that gives you a descriptive norm of what is happening because it describes the situation. So other people are doing this. This is common. And this is different to an injunctive norm, which is whether a behaviour is commonly approved of or not. So this is about social approval. Mm -hmm. So perhaps, for example, in that last example, people are using bicycles. Mm -hmm. An injunctive norm would be people approve of others using bicycles to cover short distances. Similarly, things like littering or, you know, you're not meant to pour things like paint or oil down drains. Their behaviour is that there is an injunctive norm against doing so. So those kind of are related but separate things. So what people are doing and do we think that this is what we should be doing? Will you, you know, be rewarded or punished for doing that certain thing? Yep. 
makes sense following so far. Fabulous. So a lot of the really influential seminal work in this area primarily at the start of its research history, was interested in pro-environmental behaviour. Mm-hmm. So as I kind of touched on there, things like littering or, you know, recycling, things like that. And a lot of this research used observational studies. So okay. kind of observing people in natural environments, seeing whether if one person perhaps was littering or, you know, obviously disapproved of someone littering, how mm-hmm. that would influence whether someone else went on and littered, for example. Yeah. And what you see in that research is that generally both types of norm, what other people approve of and what they are doing, tend to have an influence over behaviour just in short. You see quite powerful effects from those observational studies. Okay, plain and simple. Yeah. And actually what I remember finding really interesting around norms is that oftentimes we don't realise how big of an effect they can have on our behaviour. Absolutely. So I think, yeah, you mentioned how like a lot of this research is done in energy conservation or like environmental Mm behaviours. And I remember being really fascinated by how if you tell someone that other people are doing better in that space. So you give them like a reference point that situates them relative to someone else. So for example, other households use on average less energy than you. That actually was more motivating for people to change their behavior in line with that norm Mm. versus giving people tips they might refer more to their own personal gain like you know you might save money if you use less energy or you will protect environment if you use less energy. So in that sense how norms can be really powerful but then equally while the norms are powerful when we're asked about how much of an effect they have again we're not really aware of that no so that that research did find that people themselves actually rated being given normative tips as way less influential than say things on whether or not you save money whether or not you help the environment so yeah there is this effect but we don't necessarily appreciate how strong it is yeah exactly it's definitely underestimated versus other factors yeah but sometimes that is also rightly the case because Mm. it's not always that norms have this effect actually researchers sometimes disagreed and if we look at meta-analysis which we have come across before so this is the type of study where we pull together data from a large number of studies that have looked at broadly the same thing to see whether studies generally agree meta-analysis show that these subjective norms can be one of the weakest predictors of whether or not people actually intend to do the behaviour going forward. Yeah, especially particularly there because a subjective norm is just what you think generally other important people in your life think that you should Mm -hmm. be doing and and whether you feel motivated to obey with that. Yeah. And yeah, you do exactly see that they can be particularly weak predictors in some instances. Yeah. And then obviously you know so much about this literature base. Why is that the case? Do we know by now? Mm, Yeah, so there's been a lot of development on this. So In the late 1990s, researchers basically put forward an argument that the lack of strong support that you see basically could reflect a problem in the way that norms were being defined in these studies or perhaps thought about. And the social identity approach, which is a, a theoretical framework, This came about in the 1980s, the 1990s, has Mm -hmm. been extremely influential since. Basically, this theory tells us that belonging to a social group, so perhaps your nationality, perhaps a sporting team, Mm -hmm. perhaps a work group, these groups provide us with a sense of definition for who we are and they guide us for, you know, what being a group member involves. Um, So in other words, basically, the group has norms attached to it. And the real key message that came out of this theoretical perspective when it comes to group norms is that when individuals feel that being a group member is important to them, they will bring their behaviour in line with the norm and standards of that group. 
So the key message, the thing that's really important here is that you need to pay attention to the source of where the norm is coming from. Okay, It yeah, can't just yeah. be, you know, any norm that isn't necessarily influential or attached to a group that is meaningful to you, right? So yeah, yeah, that yeah, can yeah. perhaps be helping us explain why sometimes norm effects can vary because it's not that all norms will be equally influential. Yes, exactly. So one example that comes to mind is just feeling maybe a sense of like societal pressure or like yeah. public pressure that we can all relate to does not always make us do the thing that we think society wants us to do. You know, we've all got the experience of like a family member wanting to be helpful and nudging us to do what what they think would be best for us. But actually, we might not care about that very much. (laughs) Exactly. Whereas group norms, so like what an important group for you are Mm -hmm. doing and what they think you should do. So both a descriptive and an injunctive norm from the group should have a significant impact for you. But again, what you see is that this group will only have a significant impact over you when that group is important in how you define yourself. So it has some sort of value for self-definition in that way. Because when you accept that and when you internalise that group value, that group norm no longer becomes a public pressure. It becomes Mm -hmm. something that you align with and you believe in yourself. And using perhaps workplace identity as an example of that, Mm -hmm. for an academic who sees work as really important in defining themselves, it gives them a real sense of meaning Mm -hmm. and like belonging and affiliation. They might feel that, okay, being a part of this work group means that I attend meetings and I show up and I, you know, engage in all these activities and they follow the norm because that group is important. But say that your work identity isn't important for how you see yourself, then you may not feel the need to obey by these norms because the group isn't influential in that sense. So really how you feel about the group and and what that group means to you is going to be really important in predicting whether or not you see an effect here. Okay, yeah. And so in a practice, how do we see this play out? How does it impact people's behaviour? Yeah, so what you see in research is that this is a really powerful effect in a number of different areas. There's been a lot of interest, particularly in areas such as health behaviour and environmental behaviour, but you tend to see similar effects in a lot of different domains. Mm -hmm. In terms of health behaviour specifically, a lot of this research has looked at the influence of things like friendship and peer groups because they're very influential there. And the general trend that you see is that the norms of a specific group, so for example, your friends or peers at your university, because a lot of this research is in students, These norms are positively related to your intention to engage in a specific health behaviour, for example, exercise or whether you believe that you need to protect yourself from the sun. And as you'd expect, you see that these intentions are significantly stronger among people who really identify with their peers. So this group is really meaningful for them. Mm -hmm. They get a real sense of connection and belonging and meaning from being with their friends. For people who don't, for people who are low identifiers, what you see here is that personal factors tend to be the strongest predictors of your behaviour. So Mm -hmm. how much control they have over the behaviour, for Mm -hmm. example. And you see this kind of pattern across different health behaviours, such as binge drinking, smoking, healthy and unhealthy eating, for example, particularly in university student groups. And again, in environmental behaviour, you see that friends and peers are really important in predicting whether we do things like recycle at home, Mm -hmm. but also community groups are really important as well in things like sustainable behaviour. So for example, this has been looked at in terms of land use and people like landowners and farmers and how they use this land sustainably can really be down to whether there is a norm around this. Okay, yeah. But what we also see in my own research, for example, Mm -hmm. is that these broader groups in 
society that are perhaps a little bit more abstract, less physically present and mm-hmm. immediate in our surroundings, but still very much psychologically present. Things like our national identity mm-hmm. can also influence certain behaviours that are related to health. So, for example, whether we engage in heavy drinking and also whether we engage in behaviours that are really important to protecting our health, such as things like um, hand washing, vaccine uptake, Mm -hmm. and also things like social distancing in the pandemic. So some of my own work was looking at whether you saw the British identity as being important to yourself and whether you saw that Britain had a norm in line with social distancing Mm -hmm. and what you saw that obviously the group predicted your behaviour but only if you saw British identity as being really important. So it's very much something that you see across the board in terms of many different levels of group. Okay yeah so from kind of immediate people around you to Mm -hmm. like a level as far removed as national identity or even like a whole continent that all predicts how we behave yeah super super important with you excellent let's then move on to debatable yes where we address some open questions and some points of contention in the science so all of that science is making me think then are we kind of at the mercy of these groups are we you know do people just kind of blindly comply with what they think other people are doing or want them to be doing especially when those groups seem important to them are we kind of at the mercy of these groups yeah so i can see the concern there but i in short would like to kind of communicate that that is not the message that's coming from this research so Mm -hmm. group influence is a process of conformity but not blind compliance. So as we've kind of mentioned before, norms are not these out there external pressures. Individuals kind of take them on to align with their own attitudes and they believe them to be true. Mm -hmm. So people aren't abandoning all of their privately held beliefs and Mm -hmm. all the things that they believe in to align with these behaviours. It can be the case that what you believe kind of privately can also align with your public behaviour Mm -hmm. in terms of these norms. And interestingly, what we see in research is that where there is evidence for kind of some of these group level factors Mm -hmm. in relation to behaviour, this does not necessarily undermine the relevance of individual level factors, such as how much control you have over a behaviour, how confident you feel Mm -hmm. in your ability to perform a behaviour, how motivated you are as a person, and also your attitude towards a behaviour. There's a framework known as the theory of planned behaviour, which is essentially Mm -hmm. just a model that looks at the contribution of all of those factors I've just mentioned. And when you look at the data, again, looking at the level of a meta-analysis where you're Mm -hmm. pooling across studies, What you see is that personal attitudes actually have the strongest relationship with your behaviour. Specifically in this case here, they were looking at health behaviour. And this is followed quite closely by descriptive norms. And then things like control and more subjective norms, so just generally important others, follow and predict behaviour, but to a lesser extent. Mm -hmm. And so I I suppose the point I'm trying to make is that individual level variables are clearly important there, right? Mm -hmm. Attitudes Mm -hmm. is right Mm -hmm. up there in terms of predicting. But it's not always going to be a reliable predictor of behaviour because otherwise you would always see attitudes translate into behaviour. Being pro-environmental would then always lead you to behave pro-environmentally. And we don't always see that to be the case. But norms can be powerful in translating an attitude into a behaviour if you internalise that norm you know okay so I think that's a key message there yeah right so the takeaway being 
groups can be really important, particularly when we think that those groups are important mm-hmm. and what those groups think of us. But equally, the individual factors will factor in and yeah. both things kind of interact yeah. and then result in what we think about a certain behaviour and whether or not we ultimately do it. Exactly. Lots okay. of things can be important at the same time. Yes. Everything, it's way more nuanced, you know, it's not Always. black and white. And the effect of groups will also depend on what behaviour we're looking at. So obviously, yep. again, you know, norms apply differently to different behaviours and it is important to remember that we have got agency. We're not just blindly kind of walking around adhering to whatever society tells us to do. And for some behaviours, even if they are quite influenced by the group, we only see that norms impact what we actually do under certain conditions. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, exactly. I can give you a few examples of where we see that. So mm-hmm. norms tend to be really influential. For example, when your own personal norm is a little bit weaker. So basically you see that normative influence is strongest among people who are generally a little bit ambivalent about a behaviour. So they're just not too bothered about it. Okay, yeah. um, so on the flip side of that, consider a person who feels really passionately about conserving water Mm-hmm. If they're given a message that other people aren't conserving water, then they're not going to they're still not going to go and do that themselves because they feel really passionately about yeah. it themselves yeah. versus someone who doesn't have any strong feelings about yeah. doing that, for example. What we also see is that norms are more influential over behaviour when you have a weak moral basis for that attitude and behaviour. So those with a really strong moral basis for an attitude will instead intend to react publicly Mm -hmm. against the group norm because, you know, they have a a basis for that and they're not going to be so swayed by the group, essentially. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think then almost on the flip side of that, norms are more likely to impact behaviour when maybe we don't have a strong moral compass or actually when we're quite uncertain about a situation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, say you're in a new situation or you just don't really know what is the right thing to do. And obviously people like being right. We like doing the right thing. But if you are uncertain, that makes you more likely to kind of look around and say, right, what is everyone else doing so that I know what to do myself? Yeah. And this can be really specifically uncertain or also just very generally uncertain. So in terms of our own beliefs, what kind of people we are, what we stand for, if we're a little bit unsure, we're probably going to go with the norm, which I think is really interesting. It's a very kind of broad finding. (laughs) Yeah. Um, We also see that you're more likely to behave in line with a norm when that norm is salient and more complicated language there so what that essentially means is accessible is it really obvious to you in the moment Mm -hmm. and so your behavior is going to depend on whether a group is salient and also which group is salient Mm -hmm. and accessible to you and influential in the moment because the influence of the group is not ever present Mm -hmm. identities and groups will fluctuate in their relevance depending on what kind of situation you are in Mm -hmm. so for example a student might engage in drinking behaviour really heavily at the student union bar with other students where their student identity is really accessible. But when they're at home alone and their personal identity is more salient or they're with their family where they might have a familial identity that's really accessible and the behaviour isn't normative for those groups, then you're not going to start binge drinking. (laughs) So it's kind of, you need to appreciate context and the situation because it's going to have like a really heavy influence. Mm -hmm. And also that can explain some of the difference um, that we see in the research in terms of private and public behaviour. So Mm -hmm. group norms are less accessible when you're on your own in private environments where group members are not. So you may be less likely to behave in line with a norm Mm -hmm. in those situations. Mm -hmm. And then finally, I think just as a reminder of what we've said earlier, norms are 
more likely to have influence over your behavior when the group the norms refer to is actually really important to you so the main takeaway here being that it's not all about groups it's about the important groups yeah exactly if it's a group that is unimportant to you or a group that you're not even part of then that norm is just going to have no relevance Mm -hmm. over that behavior that makes sense yeah so we know all about norms now we do the different types of norms and how they impact what we do Let's move on to doable now, where we give some actionable steps based on the science that we've just discussed. So, Emily, let's say someone wants to establish some new norms in a group they're part of, whether that be kind of, you know, a new workplace or an existing, say, a sports club. How would they go about creating a new norm? Yeah. So one thing that's really important to note first off is that behavior can be the product of a norm misperception, which basically means that people think an action is more typical or Mm. more approved of than it actually is. And so what you really want to do if you're trying to correct a norm or make sure that you're communicating one positively is basically correct your injunctive and descriptive norms together and make sure that those are in alignment. So what you don't want to do is have these two things contradicting one another Mm -hmm. because both descriptive norms, so what people typically do, and injunctive norms, so what is approved of, both independently influence behaviour. But what you see is that the impact of those are strongest when they are consistent with one another. Yeah. So if you expose someone to a descriptive norm that shows a lack of respect for an injunctive norm, so something like most students think that we should conserve energy, but not a lot of them are, Mm -hmm. then this will eradicate the influence of a norm Mm -hmm. completely. So when you're trying to communicate a norm to a new group, for example, it's really important that people like group leaders, sports coaches, people that are influential at work, they really need to work on delivering positive descriptive norms. Mm -hmm. And what you want to do here is emphasise the prevalence of people who are doing a behavior mm-hmm. as opposed to the number of people who aren't doing the behavior okay. or what you risk is increasing people's engagement in poor behavior by making it seem more normative than it actually is so this is what i mean by misperception here you yeah. don't want to kind of make people think that something is happening when it's not and that's not the norm okay yeah that makes me think of like another way of messaging norms which is kind of practicing what you preach yeah exactly and essentially you need to model that behavior particularly if you're in a position of leadership or in management where actually violating a norm you're actually telling other people to adhere to can be really bad yeah and I think an example that has stuck in a lot of people's minds from the pandemic was the UK leadership government there were many leaders who were telling people to do one thing but did not obey the norm themselves exactly and that got I think rightfully quite a bit of backlash it did and it and research shows that it can reduce how effective you are seen as a mm. leader which obviously you don't want and it can also reduce the meaningfulness of a group for followers so there mm. are a lot of negative consequences to someone violating normative behavior and that's why modeling is so important if you want people to follow your lead and you know behave in line with a norm that is really important to communicate mm-hmm. then you need to you know not just talk the talk but A lot of this is also really important because some of my research, which is still emerging and in development, Mm -hmm. but what we're looking at at the moment is is how do we learn these norms? What what process is at play when Mm -hmm. we're when we're learning a new norm? And the process that we're currently looking at the efficacy of is kind of observational associative learning. So when you see someone do something and you see a group being continually paired with a behavior Mm -hmm. over time that is how that link forms and and so I think that really emphasizes why modeling is perhaps so important because if you see it then you're likely to do it because that communicates a descriptive norm yes that really drives it home and then another way we can correct 
or avoid norm misperception mm-hmm. and behavior that might come from it is making sure that when we talk about norms or try and kind of communicate a norm, we do that in a context that is relevant to the group or specific to that group. For mm-hmm. example, that comes from research showing that, you know, if you talk to someone about typical energy usage and if you want to try and reduce energy use in a workplace, you might tell them that, okay, typical energy use in your workplace, people typically do this mm-hmm. versus saying people generally, like yeah. just general population, people do this with their energy use. Yeah. So making sure that you're talking about relevant groups, like this specific groups behaves in this way. Yeah, exactly. Finally, it's really important to make sure that the norm that you are delivering is being delivered by a member of your group who is seen as representative and as as a good representative of that group. So what you don't want is them to be seen as kind of other or, mm-hmm. you know, not one of the group. Because in research, you find that messages that come from out groups or people that are other, for example, maybe management in a workplace or a governing body that doesn't represent you very well. When messages come from these sources, as opposed to from within the group, they are less well received generally. Mm -hmm. So a real tip there is to try and build rapport and identity and meaning in your teams for norms to be translated effectively. So leaders need to be seen as kind of one of us and they Mm -hmm. also need to act on behalf as one of us to be effective in their communication. Because essentially norms shouldn't be thought of again as these external pressures they aren't orders to be obeyed so it's it's best if you can to try and discuss negotiate and form consensus among your group um, as opposed to a norm being imposed on people because they just won't you know buy into it as well that makes sense yeah right so as we're wrapping up today's session all about the science of social influence can you summarize things for us yeah so i think the main goal of this episode really is to raise awareness of the fact that our behavior is not always entirely internally motivated just really think about all the different groups that you're part of and how these groups might affect what you do yeah we know that groups can be really powerful and really beneficial to us in that they can help kind of reinforce what we do and especially when they drive behavior that might be good for ourselves or the planet yeah so we touched on this briefly in our very first episode on exercise where we talked about if you want to stay motivated to go running it might help to join a running group where you know the behavior of that running group is they'd run so you are more likely to engage in running and then seeing yourself as part of that group and recognizing that people in this group who are like me are more likely to run that might help you lead a healthier lifestyle. Yeah, exactly. But I think it's also really important to recognise that groups are only beneficial when they're reinforcing these behaviours that help to serve us and help us lead happier, healthier lives. So hopefully this episode will help you reflect on the groups you're part of and think about those that are encouraging behaviours that don't align with your values and goals as well. Yeah, exactly. And if you realise that is the case, then you might want to think about, one, changing the group and replacing the group with one that does align with what is important to you and what Mm -hmm. you want to be doing Two, thinking about trying to challenge the existing norm within that group which we've also given some tips for or creating the right kind of environment for people to be able to change that norm in that group yeah exactly and i think in some it's just really being very mindful around who you surround yourself with Mm -hmm. as their actions are likely in many ways to influence your own behavior so just being aware of some groups that might have a negative influence for you but also seeking to value and join groups that are really positive and reinforcing of behaviour that is really helpful. Yes. Right. We know all about social influence now and that's it for today, folks. Yeah. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. If you're getting brighter from this podcast, then make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Music 
or wherever you get your podcasts. Once you're there, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a review of anywhere up to five stars. If you have any feedback, questions or suggestions for future episodes, or if you're just nosy and want to put faces to the names, then you can find us on all our socials at GetBrighterPod. And if you're a bit more old school, we also check our emails at GetBrighterPod at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear what everyone has to say and give us your hot takes. We'd also like to thank the Southwest Doctoral Training Partnership for supporting this podcast. And to finish off with our disclaimer, the Getting Brighter podcast is separate from our research and teaching roles at our respective university. However, it is part of our shared passion for communicating science in an accessible and enjoyable way. Any advice given does not consider your unique individual circumstances, and we encourage you to seek professional guidance before making any significant lifestyle changes. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you. See you next time.